Last week we took a look at the Christ of the living water here in this book. And we had looked at the woman at the well. And we had looked at the Samaritan reaction to Christ being there. And it is interesting as you read down through this chapter is that you have a mass numbers of people in the city coming to Christ. And yet, as far as what is recorded, there has been no miracle done there. It's all been done through preaching. And that in itself is quite amazing. Even the Jews with all the miracles that they saw <clears throat> would not believe. But here are the Samaritans <clears throat> who just hearing the teaching come to the persuasion that He is indeed the Savior of the world. And I want to close out <clears throat> this little mini-series in John chapter 4 by looking at two things that the disciples themselves need to learn from this incident. So I want to begin reading in John 4, beginning in verse 27. At this point, His disciples came, and they were amazed that He had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Isn't it amazing that our Lord can take what we would term ordinary situations and turn them into evangelistic drawings? Here he is by the well. What is ordinary? Well, ordinarily he would be tired. We noted last week that he had approximately walked some 30 miles that day. That would have taken him anywhere from 10 to 12 hours if we're estimating this appropriately. And it was now evening. He had been walking all day. 
I'm sure that if you or I had to walk 30 miles in a day, we would have been exhausted ourselves. And so he sits there by the well. And it was at the time of the drawing, and this woman comes to that well, and Jesus, in John 4 and verse 10, he asks her to give him to drink, and the woman says, well, how can this be? I am a Samaritan woman, and Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you would have known your true need, if you would have really understood what the gift of God is, and she didn't, then you would have asked of me, Christ says, and I would have given you that living water. And it is amazing, is it not, that our Lord actually knew her future response. That if she knows these two things, that she would ask Him and He Himself would give to her that living water. Well, she does ask, doesn't she? And the problem is, is that the woman, as all human beings are prone to do, is only thinking in an earthly manner. She's not thinking of heavenly water, she's thinking of physical water, and she's thinking to herself, well, if I would have this water that I don't have to come back and draw, well, that would be a great thing, that would perhaps make my life more efficient. Think of all the time that it would save me and the burden of carrying this water pot. But there is a deep contrast between the two waters. Physical water is temporary. It only enters into the body. And it only comes in limited amounts. But living water, the water Christ is referring to, gives such a deep satisfaction that it is permanent. It gives such a deep satisfaction that it continually flows within the person who has this living water. And it flows within him to eternity. In other words, this living water is neither dried up in this life, nor is it dried up in the life to come, and it will continually be within that person all the way throughout eternity. That is an amazing gift, isn't it? That this woman is now asking for. She does ask for it, but there's a couple of issues that have to be addressed. One is she has to know her need. She has to know her sinfulness. And then she's going to bring up a major obstacle, and that is the nature of true worship. And so he asked her, he says, go call your husband. And she says, she doesn't have a husband. And the Lord says, well, what you've said is accurate. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. 
And immediately the woman knows that she's just not talking with anyone common, that she must be talking to who? A prophet. And so she enters into religious controversy. And this is really what happens a lot of times when you are witnessing to people. And she wants to know about true worship. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And our Lord himself basically tells her that there is coming a day when true worship is not tied to a geographical location like Jerusalem or Mecca or Rome or any other city on this earth. But that the Lord is seeking true worshipers, whether they be Jew or whether they be Gentile, He is actually seeking for people to worship in the proper way. And you'll see that in verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and truth. And we paused and took a look at that. There must be worship flowing out of the inner man. And it must be worship that is in agreement with the Scripture. And of course, today in our nation, we have people taking the polar opposites of those two things. We have people who only say, well, it's only according to truth whether your heart is engaged in it or not. And then you've got the other polar extreme that says, look, What really matters is our emotions. Are we really into the music? Are we into the worship? But their worship and the things that they are feeling is not according to truth. The heart and truth must what? Must be together. And these are the types of people that God is looking to worship Him. People today are consumed with locality and ceremony. They're concerned about how they feel in the services. They're concerned about the programs at the church. They're concerned about the labels that they go to churches. And there is some merit to all of those types of things. They're concerned about the order of service or the building that they're meeting in or the decor that is going on or the music that is being played. But what God wants is worship flowing from our heart in accordance to truth. That is what God is looking for. And folks, you can have all the proper music and all the proper order of service and the nice building and the nice decor and the good programs and the good atmosphere, but the answer of the Lord is, where is our heart? Can we be in all that and our hearts be far away? The answer to that is yes. Jesus is looking for this type of true worship, the outworking of truth in our hearts. And of course, the Samaritans responded to that. The woman goes and she leaves her water pot when the disciples show up in verse 27, <clears throat> and she goes back into the city, probably to the leaders of that city who would have been at the gate 
And she said, verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I had done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. And they asked him to stay for two more days. And he does consent to do that. And in verse 41 it says, Many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of who? The world. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, the Savior of the world. That was the drive of Jesus' teaching. Now, when we look at all of this, we also have to look at not only the Samaritan reaction to the Messiah, but the disciples' reaction to the Messiah. They did have a reaction. And you'll see that in verse 27. The disciples came and they were amazed that he had been talking with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, And yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you speaking from her? In other words, no one is saying, well, what are you asking her? Or what do you want from her? Why are you talking to her? But what they were doing was is that they were urging him to eat, verse 31. Now Jesus had sent them into the city to what? To buy food for the evening. And so they come back with that food and they are all of them together urging him to eat. And Jesus is going to use this occasion to introduce instruction for his disciples. And he begins just like he began with the woman. With the woman, he's sitting there by the well, he asks for what? He asks for drink. Here, they say, eat. And he says to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Sometimes in jest, I'll come down from upstairs. My general behavior is to get up, get a cup of coffee, head to my chair, open my Bible, begin reading, I'll come down, my wife will say, have you had breakfast yet? And I'll say, I have meat to eat that you do not know about. (laughs) And she gives me the book. But in any case, this is what our Lord is talking about. He is talking about food that's not what? It's not physical. It's not bread. It's not something that you hold in your hands. He has meat or food that he is eating that they're not aware of because if they had been aware of it, they would not have just been urging him with no other alternative in mind. They would not have been urging him to eat. And so perhaps they begin to draw conclusions. Well, this must be why he had been speaking with the woman. Maybe the woman had brought him something to eat. Look at verse 33. 
disciples were saying one to another. No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And brethren, our Lord gives to us the very first lesson that we need to understand. And the first lesson is this. Jesus has food to eat that they did not know about. What is it? Verse 34. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. There is food out there that all true believers are aware of. Why do I say that? Because later on in this book, he's going to talk about the bread that came down from where? Heaven. And he's going to say, just go over a couple of chapters and look toward the end of that chapter. He's going to talk about that bread, and he's going to talk about that drink, and he's going to say the bread is his flesh. But he's going to give the true sense of what he was teaching those people in verse 63. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. He's only using the flesh as an analogy. The Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Now note what he says. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are what? In other words, it's the words that are the nourishment. And true believers, all true believers, know about this type of food. They have to have it. When I first got saved, I used to call my Bible my teddy bear. I had it by my bed. I had it with me all the time when I met my wife. Before she became my wife, I had it in my back pocket. And we were walking, and she was sharing with me some things. And I pulled the Bible out of my back pocket, and I said, look at this verse, and look at what the Lord says. And she goes, you have a Bible in your back pocket? And I said, of course. (laughs) Doesn't everybody? And she said, no. "No." (laughs) And I said, they should. Now today, it's on our smartphones, right? So you can't tell who really has it or who doesn't. But folks, the point of it is, it isn't that you have to have a Bible in your back pocket, but it is this. You've got to have nourishment. And that nourishment are the words that Jesus spoke. Even a believer, secondly, will say something like this. Well, I want to go to a church where I'm being fed. It's the same type of thing that our Lord is talking about. This food, this word, is nourishment. It is the will of God for us. It not only is nourishment, but it is that which strengthens us. 
It is, as it were, it's the gas of our spiritual life. It's, it's what makes us animated. It's what makes us live. When we're saved, we're saved by faith, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the Word. The graces of God come to us through the Word. And of course, Jesus understood that, did He not? He is the Word, as John brings out. He's the Word made made flesh. So you and I couldn't say to one another, well, if you would eat my flesh and drink my blood, and what I mean is, is the Word of God. We can't say that to one another, but we can give to one another the bread of life, can't we? But He could say that of Himself. Thirdly, the food that he is partaking of, that they didn't know anything about, but the food that he is partaking of consists of two things. It consists of, verse 34, doing the will of him who sent me. And it secondly consists of this, completing his work. In other words, brethren, there is a deep sense of nourishment when we are doing the will of God. In fact, we are nourished when we are doing the will of God. Sometimes I come to services and I'm not feeling well. I'm not, I'm not in the right emotional feeling stage. Maybe I'm feeling a little down. Maybe a little tired. But the moment I get in the pulpit, there is a nourishing that goes on. There is a strengthening that goes on. Why? Because I am doing that which I have been created to do. John Wesley said that the best thing for illness is to go preach. Now, I don't know about the medical advice of that. But he is making the similar point, isn't he? What he's making is, all right, I'm not, I'm feeling under the weather, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go preach because when I'm preaching, I feel the nourishment. Doing the will of God, that which I have been created to do. And folks, it is the will of God that brings us joy. Nehemiah states that the joy of the Lord is your strength. To know what God's created purpose, I'm not talking about the overarching Ephesians chapter 1 type of purpose, but to know the purpose for which God has created you, there is to be joy in that. And in the joy of doing that, there is strength. And then I hope one day that I could say my food is to accomplish His work. 
there is a joy to be able to say at the end of your days, it is finished. I have finished the work that you gave for me to do. There's a joy in which Paul would say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the what? I have kept the faith. There's a nourishment in that. And a forward expectation of the crown of life. Brethren, we are not created to do our own will. We are created and been recreated to walk in newness of life. There is a nourishment in showing forth the fruit of love. There is a nourishment in showing forth the fruit of patience. There is a nourishment in all of this that does sustain life. It sustains life. Was Jesus tired by the well? He was tired by the well. He was weary. He was exhausted. And yet when the woman came there was a revitalization of him to where he was able to hold that conversation, bring that woman to saving faith. It's an amazing thing. J.C. Ryle wrote, How many professing teachers of religion know nothing whatever of the spirit and habits of mind which our Lord here displays? It can never be said of hunting or shooting or ball going or card playing or farming that that is one's meat and drink. But to do God's will and finish His work, that is nourishment and that is health and that is strength. Brethren, do you know anything about that? Do you know anything about getting up in the morning and opening your Bible? I don't know about you, but many mornings I get up tired. To sit there, open the words of Christ, to see that illumination, to be strengthened. That is a strength that goes way beyond just getting a good night's sleep and popping up in the morning rearing to go. This is an inner strength. And brethren, we need to know a little of something of this degree to have a food to eat that other people don't know about. When Israel was wandering through the wilderness, God let them suffer a lack of food and drink. Why? So they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God does man live. 
there's a life that needs to be sustained in a believer that's not physical. Moses knew something of this, did he not? Can you imagine fasting 40 days and 40 nights? Can you imagine coming down off the mount, breaking the tablets, and then going up for another 40 days and 40 nights? How could he live? He was not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And brethren, when someone can go months and months without opening their Bible, it bothers me. If I went months and months without food, would you be bothered about me? I'm bothered about people who profess Christ that don't open their Bibles. I'm not talking about maybe missing a day. I wouldn't want to do that, but maybe even missing two days. But missing months? Or years? That is unfathomable to me. That does not compute. And folks, it doesn't compute in the Bible either. Let us redouble our efforts to feast well every day next week. So that when your mother or your sibling comes in and says, have you had breakfast? You can say, I have meat to eat that you do not know about. The second lesson that the disciples needed to understand was about sowing and reaping. And you'll see that in verses 35 through verse 38. Do Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. I am sure that you have probably heard preaching on this, but basically what this is, is a common proverbial statement in that day. And it is understandable, isn't it? If I say to you... That there are yet four months and then comes the harvest, it means that there's a time for sowing, right? Then there is a time gap in there before the harvest. And this is exactly what our Lord is saying. Basically, his point is, is that in general, there is a time between the sowing and the harvesting. And the time in which they are at here in John chapter 4 is not a time of sowing, it's a time of what? It's a time of harvesting. He says that. Behold, verse 35, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. And what's happening? Look at verse 30. They went out of the city and they were what? They were coming to him. 
Now, I'm not so sure that what our Lord is doing is showing an analogy, and there are Samaritans coming out over the fields heading to Jesus, and they had on white turbans, and so when you looked on the Mass, all you saw was the white headdress. I'm not sure that that's what our Lord is pointing out, but what He is pointing out is that there is this gap between sowing and harvesting, and right now it is the time of harvesting. Now, the Lord is not telling us that every geographical area is ready for harvesting. How do I know that? How do I know that our Lord is not saying, lift up your eyes, the whole world is white unto harvest, go for it. How do I know that? Well, several reasons. Number one, he says there's a gap between the sowing and the harvesting, doesn't he? So is there a time for sowing? There's a time for sowing and no harvesting. And there's a time for harvesting and no sowing. But folks, we also know that because Jesus had just come from Judea. He had just come from Jerusalem. And how much harvesting had he done there? Very little. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are rejecting him, are they not? And he leaves Jerusalem, he leaves Judea to go back to Capernaum. Even Paul, the apostle, had times that he had barren or little results. So every field is just not overflowing, ready for harvest. But in this particular case, it was ready for harvesting. And he says, verse 37, for in this case the saying is true. So in this particular instance, in John chapter 4, The saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So are there sowers with no what? If you're sowing, you're not reaping. And is there reaping and there is no sowing? And is there a gap between the two? We're just looking agriculturally. We understand that. If you plant tomatoes, seeds out, you don't come out the next day and say, pull off a tomato, I'm ready for my hamburger. You will be vastly disappointed. (laughs) The same individual may not be the one sowing and reaping. Now here's one of the problems that we have that I think will help us and clear this up for us. The modern church is disposed to give excessive honor to the reapers and overlook who? The sowers. 
Am I right about that? Don't we, don't we love to have the biographies of mass numbers of people coming to Christ? I love those, don't you? And I'm going to be honest with you, when I read those biographies, rarely, if ever, am I thinking, I wonder who was doing the sowing. I wonder who had been doing the speaking before that individual or that missionary ever got there. I wonder who was doing, who was the Lord using to prepare the ground for this reaping? What type of circumstances was coming into their life that our Lord was orchestrating to make their hearts ready for the reaping? Someone wrote, the sower labors in anticipation of what is to come. But the reaper must never forget that the harvest he enjoys is the fruit of someone else's toil. Toil. And brethren, I think that if we remember that, we would be able to give honor to both the reapers and the sowers. Why? Look at verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving rages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that this will happen. He who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Isn't that refreshing? Folks, you and I may live a life of comparatively speaking barrenness in our gospel witness. You may be like myself where I witness to numbers and numbers and numbers of people preach in services again and again and again and see very little. But one day I may be in glory and the seed that has been sowed, the seed that you have sowed, will be brought to fruit. You may not see it. It may be another individual. But at the end of the day, we're not jealous of the reaper and the reaper's not jealous of the sower. We rejoice what? Together. Together. Brethren, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do we hear that? In a day in our nation where people's hearts are hardened, where judgment is going on, we need to speak that to ourselves. Or we will get discouraged, as I have been discouraged at times. And brethren, when we get discouraged, what we do is we stop confessing. Because in our heart of hearts, we'll say something like this. What's the use? What are you saying? 
What are we saying when we say that? That my labor is in what? It is in vain. But it's not in vain. In the Lord. In John 4, different people were involved in the harvest that was going on here. The Lord Jesus was sending the disciples at this particular moment to be involved in a harvest where they had not given one ounce of labor. Where were they? They were at the grocery store. <laughs> right? <laughs> they went into town to buy, to buy food. I just modernized it. <clears throat> they were at Kroger. They hadn't done anything. But Jesus said, look at verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. What's the next word? It's plural. Others. Plural. Have labored. And you have entered into their labors. What would have been possibly some of the others? Well, could some of the others be the Scriptures? Could some of the others have been the prophets? Could some of the others have been John the Baptist? What do you think? And John probably didn't know anything about it. Certainly could have been Moses. It could have been some teacher in their synagogue there that opened the Scripture and read. Could have been conversations that they had with their parents. The woman evidently, as corrupt as she is, evidently she did know something about the Scripture because she said, our fathers have taught us in this mountain, but you Jews say... She had some religious background. Maybe it was just the Lord working and preparing them in their heart. that they had thought and come to conclusions about their existing religion. Who knows, right? But what we do know is that he's not just talking about himself. Others had entered into this. They had sowed. And perhaps sowing that had been done through multiple generations and the disciples had entered into that labor. John chapter 4 is such a gift to us. In fact, it's amazing to me how frequently in the book of John we're talking about food and drink and meat and bread and water and these types of things. But folks, it does instruct us, doesn't it? 
It instructs us not to get haughty if we get to reap. As if we've done something. That it was our method. That it was our salesmanship. It was the way we said it. We said it right. Others said it wrong. Folks, if there's one thing we know about people being saved is that it is a mystery of how things are planted in people's hearts and they're watered and they grow and they take root. Christ said it's a mystery. Let's not complain about the mystery. And let's not get haughty and prideful if we are ones who get to reap more than number than normal. But it also encourages us to keep on confessing. People can't be saved unless they hear. And they must hear by the Word of God. And whether it's in our homes with our children, whether it's with our relatives, whether it's with our friends or our neighbors or co-workers, it could be somebody you just run across at work or as you're walking along the street. It is encouraging to know that as a sower, I can labor in anticipation of what is to come even if I don't see it with my eyes. And may Christ grant a harvest from our feeble efforts of sowing. We can continue to do this because we have food to eat that other people do not know about. Let's go to him.